The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Finally, some good economic news. Jobs Day blowing expectations. We've got full policy coverage. Is this just a one-time thing or a sign of optimism to come throughout the summer? And Black Lives Matter Plaza, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser renaming the street outside of St. John's Church just outside of Lafayette Square Park, Black Lives Matter Plaza, and large letters all over the street, yellow letters. We're going to give a take on that as well. And Robert Shapiro, chairman of Sonicon and former senior economic advisor to Democratic presidential candidates like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, he's going to talk more about the economy because I've got my eye on the economy this Friday. You know, there was a huge jobs number. Did you see Jonathan Farrow's interview with Larry Kudlow? They're optimistic at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue after what was a tumultuous, tumultuous week. A lot to get through. Kate Martell is going to kick things off from the Hill. We have full economic policy coverage on the incredible jobs report uh, that that shocked Wall Street and and blew expectations. Maddie Duppler is going to join us. Robert Shapiro is going to join us. Uh, and then this bombshell injected into the 2020 race from former Vice President Joe Biden. So we'll check in with our Biden World Insider, Kevin Walling, uh, as well about this remark that's being equated to equivalent of like Mitt Romney's 47% remark and then the whole deplorables comment. Remember that? Uh, with Hillary Clinton. So we're going to dive into that if it's going to shake up the race. But we begin tonight uh, with still uh, the continuing fallout following the death of George Floyd. And joining us on the line is Kate Martell. Kate's been all over this story. She's a reporter Uh, at the Hill. She's a national political reporter at the Hill. Uh, And in terms of where the president went today uh, on this particular issue, Kate, uh, doubling down on the issue of law and order and being able to take a policy victory lap uh, on the economy. Well, thank you for having me, Kevin. Yes, you just you summed that up well, that it's been such a such a an intense week, an emotionally draining week. And it was a time when the president was looking for any good news to share. And it was a time when the country really just needed something positive to cling on to. And President Trump really did take that that prompt this morning. And when we saw that jubilant um, jobs report, President Trump had an unexpected news conference. And the tone of it was victory. He was talking all about victory and all about how the economy is coming back after the coronavirus. And as you pointed out, he did talk, mention um, George Floyd and talked about it in almost a positive sense, saying that um, that while 
it has been a, a tough week for the United States that he hopes that George Floyd is looking down in a positive way and sees this change that's coming. So it was a fascinating time when the, the world is so unstabilized and President Trump was really able to kind of take this news and in his the best way possible in the way that he loves being out there in front of a microphone um, and just being able to kind of freewheel and talk about all sorts of issues and bouncing around to whatever comes to mind. He was able to take all of this news and what he wants to do is turn this into a victory lap. And he very much did that this morning. Did he stop the political bleeding? I don't think he stopped the political bleeding. That's It's a good question because um, that while he did, I, I think while the economy is what will ultimately determine what uh, happens in the ballot box in November, historically it has always been about the economy and where people people have jobs and um, how they feel economically. Um, I, I do think that we're at a time that is so unstabilized in the United States and people are kind of yearning for um, some type of change and some type of healing that President Trump wasn't really leaning into the healing aspect. He was um, still full force and partisan. He's still getting into all of these fights on Twitter, as we've seen with former administration officials, that he is very much in politics. And Drew Brees. Uh, you see the tweet on Drew Brees? Kate <laughs> uh, Martell's on the line. She's a national <laughs> political reporter for The Hill. We're talking about President's uh, Friday. It was a dizzying day uh, in terms of, again, a, 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 a jubilant uh, jobs report. But then, of course... Uh, the situation continuing over uh, the death of George Floyd. Coming up, we're going to have full analysis of that jobs report. Maddie Duffler, Robert Shapiro. But meanwhile, as the president was talking to reporters in what, according to some of my colleagues in the press corps, was a less socially distant scene in the Rose Garden today, uh, this as more states are continuing to reopen, literally steps away just across the street on 16th, uh, 16th Avenue, uh, you know, right there outside of Lafayette Square Park, uh, outside of St. John's. Uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser declaring that Black Lives Matter Plaza and writing on the street in enormous yellow block letters, Black Lives Matter. Does that get the attention of President Trump? I, I think it has to, to some degree. It's, I, I mean, the overhead aerial shots of the Black Lives Matter sign mural painted on the ground are so striking. Um, and also there has now been a sign that has been renamed to Black Lives Matter Plaza that has to get the attention of the president. You, I mean, he's in the White House, and while they have barricaded the areas and really made a perimeter for him because of some of the protests that turned violent over the week, that you know, he really can't escape it, that while he ha is trying to move on and focus, I think, on some of the economic good news, that this is really what Americans are focused on. And I think it's it has to get his attention. It's, uh, it's hard to say at this point, I think, what the action items will be, but it's not going away for the president, and he's going to have to. And seeing that sign, as you said, it, it was just such a striking image that that is what we're going to see in the history books. And those are some of the images that we'll be seeing, especially tomorrow when we see um, a major demonstration in downtown Washington, D.C. How do Republicans, how do Republicans, this is a, a, a delicate question, how do Republicans back away from, or how do Republicans come out and say, you know what, we do need reform in this area? You know, and I put this question to two prominent, to two Republicans, a member of Congress and, and others, uh, uh, throughout the week this on this program, and they said that they would be open to some idea of some type of one-strike-and-you're-out policy for, for uh, cops who have a racist history. Because it makes all of the other cops, the major like 
uh, make their job impossible, Kate. It does. It's interesting that the Republicans you spoke to were saying that because it's hard to see. I don't know if you saw earlier this week that NBC's Casey Hunt set up a camera and was asking Republicans that were walking from um, walking to the Senate policy luncheon. Usually it's in the Capitol. And because of the coronavirus, um, it's actually been moved to heart bigger area. That means that they have to pass. Um, the reporters and be open to asking questions. Now, she asked a lot of Republicans and most Republicans didn't have answers. They've said, oh, sorry, I haven't seen how the president's reacting. And we're trying to kind of play dumb about it. But the action items, I think that you're looking over and um, we have seen that um, the chokehold is now being phased out in certain cities, that that is, is starting to be deemed unacceptable police behavior. That's something that I could see potentially Republicans being on board with. But right now, it, it is hard to see what Republicans will do. So it's interesting that you're saying that the one strike you're out is something that Republicans yeah, may support. Because, look, I mean, from, you know, well, there, we could talk about this for, for forever. All right, Kay Martell. Thank you, my friend, for joining us. National political reporter at The Hill. Uh, make sure to check out her reporting on thehill.com. That's Kate Martell. And coming up, we talk about the economy uh, and the jobs numbers and the impacts that it's going to have potentially on the 2020 race. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcasts on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Gavin Cirilli. I'm going back to Delco tomorrow just for the day. The restrictions in Delco were lifted today, so I'm going home tomorrow. To see the folks, meet my new niece, we're going to do it. Day trip. I'm Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And I just have to say, the video conference chat that I'm in with our our intrepid uh, producers, Christine Barada and Matt Shirley, they, because I'm working from home, just came at me for not having a decorated wall. So I, pre- I appreciate the critique, team. Um, joining us on the line, I'm sure he lives in a very well-decorated uh, portion of Washington, D.C., good friend of the program, Robert Shapiro, chairman of Sonicon and former senior econo- economic advisor for Democratic presidential candidates, including Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Robert, they're telling me I got to watch HGTV. <laughs> well, um, you know, you can you can create a, a any background you want for Zoom anyway. Oh. And so you could look like uh, your house is Versailles. If you know, <laughs> I always think I wouldn't go with Versailles. I would go <laughs> I would go for like a man in the woods. You know what I mean? Like I'm in the forest. All right, enough about this. Christine's going to get annoyed that I'm not staying on topic. Something's never changed, Barada. Uh, How come economists got this jobs report today so wrong, Robert? 2.5 million jobs. 2.5 million jobs added to the U.S. economy uh, in the past month. Everybody was shocked. I think President Trump was even shocked. Well, the fact is the report's not really credible. Um, Let me tell you why. You know, the BLS says it measures the unemployment rate uh, for May for the, during the week of May 16th. And it reports that 20.9 million people were unemployed that week. Well, that week they also reported that 29.9 million people 
were eligible for and receiving unemployment insurance benefits. That's a gap of 9 million people, enough to raise the jobless rate from 13.3% to 19%. Now, you know, the fact is BLS has a lot of discretion in who it counts as unemployed and who it doesn't. For example, um, if you were on furlough um, and not being paid, you were considered unemployed on temporary layoff. But if BLS expects you to return to your old job based on its survey, you don't count among the unemployed. You're on furlough. I need you to say that again because that's an important point. So you don't okay. count if what happens because this is this, folks, is is the is the crux of the of the Democratic argument and okay. other economists' argument that this jobs report needs more more looking into. Tell me that oh. one more time. Okay, um, if you're if you've been furloughed and you're not being paid, um, you're unemployed unless BLS expects you to return to your old job. That is that the furlough is temporary. If they judge that your furlough is temporary, you're no longer among the unemployed. It's left to their discretion. And it's clear that they are counting most of the people who are on furlough as, as still employed, that is, or not, not unemployed. Uh, and they have no basis for that. In fact, there was a study out of the Becker Friedman Institute at the University of Chicago that says that only 30% of those laid off will find jobs later this year. You know, it really is. Some of the data that's been coming out of, of what you just mentioned, as well as McKinsey, I mean, and the hardest hit uh, individuals are, are, are largely minority groups, um, which is, you know, heartbreaking. Um, let, me, let me ask you, Robert Shapiro, in terms of the economy, however, that said, I, I mean... As we, as we continue to navigate through this thing, how do we trust the economic information? Because the unemployment filings were also questionable because states weren't yeah. able to keep up with the pace of people filing for unemployment. Well, the fact is uh, we know that the Trump administration has put a lot of pressure on scientific analysis in lots of areas to come out with things that will serve their interests. They, uh, the Trump administration directed that the U.S. Geological Survey could only use models for its national climate assessment that the White House approved of, for example. Uh, I think we have to um, expect that the bureaucracy uh, will kind of lean over backwards to not offend the Trump White House. Okay, and I got I got to say this though. I got to say this respectfully my friend Robert Shapiro. I remember when it was Republicans who were criticizing Democrats over politicizing a jobs report. Well, um they may have criticized them. Uh that doesn't mean it was true. Look, the fact <laughs> is we have 9 million more people receiving unemployment benefits than the BLS says we're unemployed. That on its face makes the unemployment rate not credible. In addition, you know, part of the, um, another part of the issue is who's considered part of the labor force. Um, and if you're out of work and you didn't look for a job over the previous four weeks 
and you couldn't work for family reasons or you couldn't work because you were taking care of children who were no longer in school, BLS says you're out of the labor force. And if you're out of the labor force, you're not counted among the unemployed. And the BLS has clearly decided that millions of people who'd lost their jobs because of the COVID shutdowns don't count. The reason we know that is that the those who are no longer in the labor force jumped in the last couple of months by almost six million. And just a final word on this. I just want to read quickly from the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, one thing seems clear, according to the Bloomberg Terminal, it's more difficult to get a real-time handle on hiring than on firing, especially when layoffs are temporary. We've got literally like 30 seconds left, but this issue of PPP running out in the end, by the end of the year, are, are you concerned that some companies are just delaying furloughs and layoffs? Well, that may be. The fact is the BLS said that attributed the um, uh bump up in jobs in May in those who were employed um, to a resumption of limited resumption of economic activity right. that that may very well have reflected the payroll protection program. All right. Robert Shapiro, my, uh, my home decorator, I guess, these days, Robert, I appreciate you calling in, buddy, and I hope you're taking care of everything, all right? Everything's great, and I hope that you you and your family and the family of everybody listening is safe and well. Thank you, friend. All right, coming up next, Maddie Duffler. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Let's get to Kevin Walling this segment. Let's get to Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist, this segment. Uh, and we'll have him weigh in on, on the Biden remark. But first, let's stick with the issue of the economy. Uh, and Maddie Dupler. Maddie Dupler's on the line, good friend of the program. Maddie, okay, so we heard from Robert Shapiro uh, in the last block, and he had a very different interpretation of the interpretation that I think you're going to tell me uh, of, of what's been going on with today's job numbers. But 2.5 million jobs added to the U.S. economy. All right, what do you think? Well, so for once, nice to have some good news, Kev, uh, particularly <laughs> on the jobs front. Yep. So I will say there's a good and bad and ugly of today's report. The good, of course, is that half those gains came from restaurant and bars. Um, majority of those gains came from the industries that we thought were going to have the hardest time getting back online. That's retail, hospitality, and leisure. So that indicates that some employers have figured out how to get their employees back to work and hopefully have done so safely. Another silver lining here is that most of the job losses are still temporary. Uh, so that means that folks are still thinking that they're going to be able to get back to work as soon as they're economies fully open back up. Um, I think that those are some things to focus on. Now, a couple things that I think we need to keep an eye on. One is that there were revisions downwards the last two months. 
uh, which brings the three-month moving average to 6.5 million jobs lost per month. Uh, as a reminder, you know, in February, we were adding 200,000 jobs a month, so that we still have this huge delta to recover from. Um, and really, the thing I think people need to keep their eye on is the permanent layoff number. That went up to 2.3 million jobs. Um, and we need to know, as we move through the next couple of weeks and months, if what we're seeing is not simply people shifting from temporarily uh, off of work to that permanent bucket. That would indicate that we're not actually recovering and that people are just actually not going back to work. And that would mean the recovery is a long way off. I don't think we know that from the data yet, but I just think that's a number that people need to keep an eye on. Well, I want to, so say that one more time. What, what number is that? The permanent layoff number, which was 2.3 million people, which is up wow. about a million since we began with the lockdown. So that's, that's a huge jump. And that's hard to keep track of. I mean, it's very hard to calculate. And we've had this conversation, Maddie Zuppler, founder of Forward Strategy, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, uh, and of course, the former coalitions director to the House Republican Conference. We've talked about how economists have really struggled to keep up with the pace of this. But I want to get back to this question that I asked Robert Shapiro, and I want to put it to you. Are you concerned that once the PPP runs out, and there's less incentive for a lot of these companies to hold on to their workers that there could almost be a second wave of layoffs and furloughs at the end of the year. So I'm not because the whole wow. uh, thrust of the PPP is, our, is in order to give a bridge to employers right now as they wage through this uncertainty to keep their payrolls whole while they try to scale their businesses back up. Now, it's significant that the president today signed into law that Paycheck Protection Program uh, Flexibility Act because that increases the runway that employers have to use those loans and it expands their eligibility while clarifying some of the tax consequences of using PPP. All of that was extremely necessary. Absent that, those clarifications and the flexibility granted, I would say, listen, we're in for a hairy couple of weeks. But because we now have a little more certainty for employers on how the PPP loan interacts with some of the tax benefits that were granted in the CARES Act, I do think we are on much more sound footing for employers to be able to really scale back slowly and figure out how to do so in a way that prepares them for success in the coming months. All right. I got to ask you this, Maddie Zuppler. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I check all of the liberal and conservative blogs throughout the day to get a pulse of, of what each side is, is, is talking about. Drudge poll, Trump approval. This is the banner on Drudge poll, Trump approval at 38 percent. What does the president have to do uh, to to bolster his approval rating? I mean, you're a Republican. You're uh, what, what does he have to do uh, after, you know, I think what many would call a tumultuous week? So listen, we are six months out, starting next week, from the election. This month and next month in normal times would be about the time that the average voter, their opinion about the economy would begin to crystallize ahead of an election. I think that with all the volatility happening in the country right now, um, that the, the, the Trump administration has a much longer runway to convince Americans that they have a handle on the economy. And I think that if you have a steady drumbeat of positive job numbers, that will certainly aid the president. But what people are looking for right now is a steady hand. So what the administration needs to do is 
far from what Stephen Moore suggested today, which is, oh, these job numbers uh, indicate that we don't need to do anything, the president needs to lead on this and tell Congress that they need to get back to work to get another phase of stimulus and aid to businesses and workers so that Americans have certainty going into the summer months. We're not going to have a vaccine yet. We're not going to know the full extent of the public health uh, challenges until we get back into the winter months. What we need is clarity on the economic front, and the president can provide that by giving leadership uh, and telling Congress that he expects another package to make it through before the expiration of the CARES Act uh, and the UI uh, extension runs out, which is the end of July. Maddie Doppler, breaking it down, founder of Forward Strategy, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and the former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference. Hey, my love to you and the fam, all right? Stay safe out there, Maddie. Thanks, Thank Kevin, you for going. You. Wouldn't be Jobs Day without you. Joining us now, switching gears to continue with this political discussion, Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. Kev, uh, okay, there was this gaffe from Biden today. Or maybe I shouldn't call it. Do you think it was a gaffe? I, I want to I I tell you what he said for folks who don't know. Uh, he was in a virtual town hall and with Don Cheadle an actor, and it was first reported by the New York Times, got to give credit where credit is due, and he said, quote, do the words a president says matter? So when a president stands up and divides people all the time, you're going to, the worst of us, you're going to get the worst of us to come out. Do we really think this is as good as we can be as a nation? I don't think the vast majority of people think that. Uh, he went on to say, there are probably anywhere from 10 to 15% of the people out there who are just not very good people, but that's not who we are. The vast majority of pe the people are decent. We have to appeal to that, and we have to unite people, bring them together, bring them together. So this quote, there are probably anywhere from 10 to 15% of the people out there who are just not very good people. It, Republicans are pouncing on this, Kevin Walling. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily see a problem with that comment. I, I agree generally with the former vice president is you see elements within our society, whatever percentage they are. You know, I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why he got in this race and he talked so passionately was about Charlottesville, right? And seeing these neo-Nazis come out of the woodwork, come out of the fields with their tiki torches, whatever percentage of the population is there, we have a racist, xenophobic, sexist, homophobic underbelly in this country. Uh, and, I, and I don't think it does any disservice to cover it up. I think we need to address it and call people out, as the vice president was doing. I mean, compare that to the, the current president who retweeted a tweet saying that, you know, ha Democrats should be killed in the streets that he did in a retweet. So, again, not to, for the vice president to get down on the president's level, but these conservatives feigning some kind of uh, level of upset, uh, being upset with the vice president's remarks, don't square with the guy that they're, they're trying to defend. Okay, how is it going to play? How's that remark going to play in a battleground or for the 70,000 voters who remember who voted for Obama, then voted for Trump? How's this comment going to play when it's played over and over and over again? It is reminiscent of the basket of deplorables comment of the 47 percent comment of Clinton and Romney. Is it not? Sure. But but again, I, I think. You know, there, there was not a direct parallel that Hillary Clinton made in, in terms of calling the supporters of Donald Trump deplorables. I think what Joe Biden was doing was calling out those elements in our society that, that are wrong, that do hold racism in their hearts, 
that are sexist, that are homophobic in our communities. Now, if you if you believe he's describing you, then you have a greater problem. I think it, there's not a dis, there's a disconnect there between Hillary Clinton's comments about Donald Trump supporters and I think Joe Biden's comments about society as a whole. I don't see a parallel there in terms of calling out bad elements with our in our society. And you're absolutely right, Kev. There was between six million, eight million Americans that voted for Barack Obama once or twice that then voted for Donald Trump. You know, Joe Biden isn't appealing to them with those comments and 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 squaring them with those comments. What he is saying is we need to rid that hatred in our hearts that is in that certain percentage of our society, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, whether they support um, Barack Obama or Donald Trump. He wants to be the president of all people, but we can't not shine a light on some of the hatred in people's hearts. Kevin Walling, thanks for uh, making yourself available for us on a Friday. That's Kevin Walling. He's a Democratic strategist over at HG Creative Media. Uh, Don Jr. seizing on this. He's tweeted out, I assume Joe Biden is including his corrupt son Hunter and that 10 to 15 percent of Americans. More next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And I would not have this position if it wasn't for our next guest. He is a close friend, a consummate professional, and someone who has been in this industry for decades that I've had the privilege of working with for the past five years and he has made me a much better reporter journalist person on air and off it's tim Koss who retired today he is our legendary photographer and tim uh first of all congratulations congratulations how many years have you been in this in this business Oh, thanks for having me on, Kevin. It's been 39 years with my first day being the inauguration of Ronald Reagan. So there you go. So as you look at this particular moment in American history and you compare it to 39 years of journalism that you've done. And for folks who don't know, he has filmed virtually all of my interviews, but he's worked with many, many other correspondents at other networks for the past 39 years. He's covered every major American story, both domestically and around the world. But as you look at this week, Tim, what's been going, and and your final week before retiring, uh, what what has been going through your mind? Gee, you know, when you think about uh, what's going on with the riots and the turmoil that, you know, we're all witnessing, the inequities, and everything that has just come to the forefront, uh, it's, a, it's a time that I think that change is going to come. And uh, with the pandemic and the riots in the street, I've never seen such an unstable America as I see today. But you're still hopeful. I'm always hopeful. That's the one great I know that. thing about that's the one great thing about the United States is we learn and we try to move forward and change. Tim, where did you grow up? I grew up in New England, Connecticut, New Jersey. And so why did you want to be a journalist? 
Well, you know, I uh, it's pictures. I, I wanted to capture history. I wanted to be the fly on the wall uh, witnessing world history as it came to Washington, and that's certainly what has happened. Uh, it's just an amazing thing, you know, when you think about the China agreement back in the early 80s, and then you had Gorbachev coming to Washington, and, you know, you can go on and on, but witnessing history and the changes that the world has seen uh, over the last 39 years is pretty remarkable. What has been the hardest story that you've had to tell in the past 39 years? Gosh, you know, I don't have a hardest one, but, you know, you have the earthquake in San Francisco where people were killed. You had the Susan Smith trial. Let me remind the listeners that she's the one who drove her two children in South Carolina off of a boat ramp into the water. I mean, the tragedy that... uh, 9-11, my goodness, I mean, who could ever forget that? I mean, there's so many uh, events that have happened that not one could actually be the the Achilles Let me me ask this, because Tim and I I would go out for coffee literally after every morning. He'd listen to me, you know, be an obnoxious young reporter, and (laughs) he would help me keep my head on straight, and... I would always ask him for stories. Like, what was Tim Russert like? What was Tim Russert like when you worked with Tim Russert, Tim? Nicest guy in the world. I mean, <clears throat> nobody had a bad uh, thing to say about him. He was a true professional. But at the end of all the shoots that I was ever involved with him in, he came by and said, thank you very much. And that goes a long way on team leadership and building, you know, the relationship that you just want to keep on trying to do the best you can for them and make them look and sound the best. And he was really, what a professional. Tim, what did your parents do? My father was uh, a contracting CFO for a contractor, uh, defense contractor, and my mother was a small business accountant. And uh, the thing they taught me was work ethic. Work hard like it's your first day every day. And that's what I've tried to do is just try to do the best we can because, you know, in the broadcast business, failure is not an option. It is not allowed. And uh, we just tried to make sure that everything went as smooth as possible so that the talent could feel as comfortable so they could concentrate on what they wanted to talk about instead of being distracted by what's going on in the background. I can't help myself. You know I don't like that word talent. It's journalist. Uh, we got to stop using I, that word talent. It's your, we're I understand. We're journalists, yeah, I, especially I, I, in this climate. Uh, Tim Koss yes. is on the line. He is uh, a legendary uh, photographer inside of the nation's capital. He retired today after 39 years in the industry. Give us a funny story. Give us a funny story. What's the funniest thing that happened? Oh, gosh. You uh, know, not about so me, many... Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there was an unnamed reporter who uh, I used to work with, and um, he always had an 8 o'clock live shot. 
And at 7.59, the producer would be on the headset with me going, where is he? Where is he? <laughs> this isn't and me. I pan... No, it's not. <laughs> you, and I, I just pan needed to get that the... on the record. <laughs> <laughs> it is not Kevin Cerulli. <laughs> I pan from the North Lawn White House shot right in front of Lafayette Park, and you could see him sprinting down the road to try to get through the security so he could get on air. And I can't tell you how many blooper reels uh, I'm sure he made because uh, it was always running through the airport with him. He was really something else. Yeah. What makes a good correspondent? Well, you know, a correspondent has to be uh, tell both sides of the story and let let the listener decide. Uh, A good correspondent will dig its sources, and you, I have to say, wore out your shoes with all the sources. I've worked with a lot of reporters, and there is no downtime. You get off the air, and you go work your sources, and and that's the secret, is trying to find the, the most important parts of the story, both sides, and let the viewer or listener decide. And that was really important, that both sides had to be told, and that's what I had a prerequisite on. Tim, what is advice that you would give to a younger version of yourself just starting out in the industry? Get up, go to work, do the best you can. At the end of the day, say thank you very much and get up and just keep on doing it. Think of ideas, think of different ways that you could shoot the story that are different, not everything off your shoulder, or, you know, different angles. Try to have your pictures tell a story. That was uh, the most important thing to me. Tim Goss, what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? I'm coming over for muscles. I'm coming over. I mean, once this, they lift this thing, I'm there, Tim. You, you Tell Gloria to make room at the table. There you go. We have room for you always, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate it. And thank you very yeah. much, Tim. Oh, thank you, you bet, very Kevin. much, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Tim Koss, our photographer. I can't, I, it's going to be very weird not being able to work with Tim uh, every day. Um, I'm so incredibly grateful to having been able to work with someone who is such a, an incredible person. Um, and I have a lot of gratitude. And he is a lifelong friend. Thank you for listening. Stay safe this weekend. I'm Kevin Cirilli, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.